welcome everyone. I'm really excited to be here with my friend, Casey Must. Casey um, owns Citizen Yoga, and uh, we've known each other since well before that, and I'm so excited for you to hear maybe pieces of her story that you are less familiar with, and then we can just talk about um, all of the awesome things she's doing, her intent, her purpose. Um, my intention, of course, as always with this podcast, is people sharing their life's purpose and how they got to a life of purpose, and that it's not always an easy path, and Casey's story is no exception to that. So uh, welcome, Casey. Thank you. I'm so excited, and thank you for doing this. Um, let's start at the beginning, because that's my favorite, is how do you get to be Casey Must? I think people have an idea of who you are, but probably don't actually know that much about you in the ways that they think they do. Or that you do. Or that I do, yeah. right? I already asked, what can we share? So we'll see how much I push you <laughs> to <Yeah>. share. <laughs> but... Um, Let's start at the beginning. What was your childhood like? You're one of four girls, right? Mm -hmm. Raised in local Metro Detroit. Yeah. So I grew up with three extremely driven, strong, very um, outspoken sisters. Um, we were all extremely different, which is um, interesting, though we have a thread of similarity. And um, we had my mom who is sort of the cornerstone of our family and the direction of all the attention. And then my dad, who worked a lot. Mm -hmm. And so um, from that, it created a lot of really interesting family dynamic. Yeah. And both your parents worked your whole life? Or did your mom start her business after you guys were grown? So my dad worked. My dad owned um, is an entrepreneur, um, which sort of makes sense when I start to put my life together. Mm -hmm. My uncle is also an entrepreneur. And... Um, my mom is an entrepreneur now, but mm -hmm. my mom was a full-time mom. She loved being a mother. That's something that she talks a lot about. We were all two years apart. Um, Perfectly she, timed. Yes. <laughs> and, and she was also, you know, we didn't have a lot of, we had help, but she was always present, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting. Lots of activities. And um, my mom started her company after we all left. Okay. And now she's very committed to her company and interestingly enough, like which we'll talk about later, she also sort of did what I've done, which is you work with a purpose and it sort of helps you heal the things that you don't understand about your life or the mm -hmm. things that you can't necessarily cope with and through your work or your karma, whatever that is, you start to make sense of it all. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that it's almost like um, once you find a life that feels more meaningful or work that feels more meaningful, you can then look back and go, oh, I see why yeah. I'm doing this and how I got here and retroactively start to understand yourself better. So what are those pieces you're trying to understand? What was your childhood like? You were an athlete. Where do you fall in the, in the, in the order of kids? So I was three. Okay. Um, from a perspective of I was two months early, so I was very premature. I was three pounds when I was born. Mm. Um, my mom talks to me a lot about my birth, which was very interesting. She talked to me a lot about like staying in mm -hmm. and not coming out so quickly, which now looking at me would make a lot of sense because yeah. I'm always in motion. Yeah. Um, but that being premature also lent to me being, one, I'm a little bit not just physically smaller, but I'm also sort of a wimp. Yeah. Um, if you don't know that about me, I'm a huge scary cat about everything. Mm -hmm. um, very delicate in my my emotions. Mm -hmm. I know it might not seem that way to people, right. but that is actually more of who I am. And so being amongst my sisters, um, I was sort of like 
I was more of the girly girl. Mm-hmm. I was not an athlete as a child. Okay. My little sister was a really strong athlete. My oldest sister was a strong athlete. Brittany was um, extremely strong athlete, but she also um, was just bigger. And so she would beat me up a lot and mm-hmm. then laugh at me, which was great. Awesome. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so I didn't really come into my own as an athlete until middle school. Mm-hmm. What's sort of interesting is that how good we were at sports was sort of like, I don't know if this is real or not, but my perception was like sort of how valued you were. Mm, mm-hmm. So this might come in later to like the mentality of like success and business and things like that is yeah. like how you derive value in your microcosm of your family, but then also how do how did I derive value in the macrocosm of the world? Yeah. And um, yeah, I stepped into athletics much later in my life. Interesting. Was your, your mother's very physically active. Do you yes. think that's where it, what led to all the sports and achievement? Was your family achievement oriented? <laughs> I know that's sort of an obvious question, but go ahead and answer it because people don't know. Yes. Yeah. So we're very competitive. We're very competitive even like who got the front seat. Yeah. Um, where you sat in the car. Everything was sort of like this under undercurrent of competition. Interesting. Um, my mom's affection was a huge competition. Yeah. Like who was her favorite at the moment? It was a least. big fight. Yeah. Um, so what I, what I used to do in, um, elementary school is I would find like, I would make myself the favorite of all the teachers, but not like a way that most people do. Like I was, I would behave sort of badly at first and then yeah. I would like convince them to like me a lot. Interesting. And so teachers actually became, um, a huge cornerstone of my life. I can think of a few specific teachers. I had a sixth grade, um, science teacher, Mrs. Gerson, who, really took me under her wing, Miss mm-hmm. Ellis. I used to, like, hang out with them. Yeah. And I always hung out with, like, a lot of adults to understand childhood. The world felt very scary to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you feel like you didn't belong in the world? Um, belonging? No. I felt like I belonged socially Okay. a lot of the time, though I was very afraid mm-hmm. of social interaction as a younger child. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom always said that I like would never leave home. Yeah, because I yeah, yeah I could not be un- detached from her at all. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even go to like preschool. Yeah, I had to go to half day preschool, but it was really just daycare because I yeah. couldn't separate. Yeah. Um, I I guess what I'm asking is, do you felt do you think you felt other because you were seeking out a. Um, adult interaction? Did you feel like you related more to that? Did you feel other from the kids because of your sensitivity? Or it was just that you were seeking that attention and feedback that perhaps was a little more scarce at home? No, I felt like it was just security of the world just felt so big and I felt so small. And mm. I think we all feel that. Mm-hmm. Like I think sensitive people feel that more. Yeah. And I remember having a distinct memory of like, wow, how am I going to manage this whole thing mm-hmm. as a kid? Like, mm-hmm. this is, like, too this overwhelming. This whole thing life. Yeah. Yeah. I've, like, had a, f- like, it's very interesting threading, like, I've had a fear of losing people my whole life, which Same. very yeah. then is, like, this mm-hmm. thread that, like, moved into my 20s, which we can talk about at some point, but yeah. this massive fear of losing people. Mm-hmm. Like, I would cry about people dying before they they weren't dead. I think like, I forgot that we have this in common. Yeah. I mean, I, that is, I highly sensitive children who don't have an understanding of that. I think that for me, I mean, I had debilitating separation anxiety. Yeah. So I relate so much. And, and as now a mother raising a sensitive child, it's like hearing my story in my story as a mother now and how you felt with your mother. Like yeah. that's so interesting. Yeah. Um, but I think that's such a superpower that we have that sensitivity 
but as a child, it, you, it's difficult to navigate, yeah. right? So what did you do to cope with all of that besides seeking out teachers? Did you have other strategies to cope? Yeah, I mean, I, I made a lot of friends. That was really helpful. The social scenarios were really difficult for mm-hmm. me, and that's what's sort of interesting about my life now. Mm-hmm. Um, I never thought I would be this comfortable as meeting strangers and how comfortable I've made myself. But that was a path that I took. That wasn't something that just arrived. How? (laughs) That's like, go ahead. So I think I never expected myself to be independent. That was like a fear of mine. And there was something that I think I was perceived in my family as less independent or less strong. That was my impression, whether they felt like that or not. Sure. Maybe they didn't feel like that. They probably mm-hmm. saw me totally different than how I see myself. Sure. Um, I always appear extremely confident as a kid and probably now to people, but always had a lot of like self-doubt. Who am I? What's going on in myself? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I sort of did throughout my life is I put myself into like my own personal independence boot camp. Okay. Um, which sounds exactly like what I would do to myself. I am put, I was very committed to this wanting to be independent, but not really sure how. And so So you forced yourself into situations. Yeah. So, um, sports was a really great avenue for me. We talked a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Um, I played three sports. Um, of course there was a lot of pressure on me. My sister above me was a 12 letter athlete at Cranbrook. So then of course, I had to be a 12-letter athlete at <laughs> Competition. Grandma. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I would work myself so hard on the sports field that my lacrosse coach used to have to pull me off because I would sprint the entire game. And she was like, <laughs> you can't just sprint right. your whole game. Like, you have to come off the field or else you're going to make yourself sick. And during yeah. preseason for field hockey, yeah. who our landlord at um, in Royal Oak at the studio, mm-hmm. she's my old field hockey coach. Which is interesting. Yeah. And every first day of preseason, I would get so nervous that I wanted to do well. And then I would run myself so hard that I would puke on the field every first day of preseason. Because oh it was just like this internal drive. Mm-hmm. But sports gave me a lot of um, personal confidence. It gave me a lot of like direction to my competitive edge, which we can talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that Cranbrook... Um, really was a good school for me. It insulated a lot of my creativity. It create, uh, it promoted a lot of my creativity, but it insulated me from, I think, a lot of difficult social dynamics that people felt like existed in their middle school or their high school. Because it was more inclusive to diversity or what? What made it safer to you? What, how was, so the Cranbrook is a private school here locally <laughs> in Metro Detroit, for those of you who don't know, but in I always think of it from an, as an outsider, like the school, people would call it the school for wealthy people, yeah. right? But how do you feel like it insulated you in a way that, that was helpful? Um, I think I was really lucky with the grade that I got. Mm-hmm. My friends were very down to earth. We let ourselves be, I convinced my whole middle school to become hippies in like <laughs> Cranbrook, which did not make any so sense. So you've always been an influencer? Sure, yes. <laughs> um, so I think that... There was also space for me to break rules Mm -hmm. in a way that, like, tested my independence. I'm always, like, a rule follower slash rule breaker. Yeah. Which makes sense for citizen. Yeah. And um, I don't think it really prepared me, though, for the world. Mm -hmm. So I think that it did a really nice job, like, building this my sense of who I am in, like, a very expansive um, education. 
But once I went to Northwestern, I really struggled socially. And that was the first time in my life that I felt bullied. And um, it was a very painful experience for me. I Now, on the flip, I also met two of my closest friends of all time. Yeah. But there was a... Northwestern, I would say, was this turning point in my life that forced me into a much more compassionate perspective. It forced me to understand how difficult life can feel. Mm-hmm. And that's why, that's one of the reasons um, I'm so passionate about supporting um, people in college. Mm-hmm. Be- what do you think was so, what, what, give us more details about what made it so difficult. Mm-hmm. Partly because you were insulated and the environment you, the high school you were in felt really safe. And then there's all yeah. these different people from all these different backgrounds in this environment or, or no I think um well Northwestern I would say is pretty similar in some ways to the yeah sure right the background I was recruited to play lacrosse for D1 um so I had a scholarship to go to Northwestern and I got there and I did not feel very well treated by the coach so that was a very new experience for me because I've always had such positive relationships with coaches mm-hmm. in general yeah and they were always very close to me. I always looked up to them. I can take feedback extremely well, which we can talk about. Like, I yeah. think of it like an athlete. I don't mind if you tell me I'm doing something incorrectly. It was just like a learning. Like, you're my blind spot. You're looking yeah. at my blind spots. Help. Yeah. And this coach really treated me really poorly, which was my first sort of, like, very rude awakening. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a lot of body image issues in the athlete world in general, and it was the first time that, like, I was extremely muscular because I had to, like, really lift so much weight. Uh-huh. Um, to try it, to keep up. To keep up. I was already smaller. Yeah. Um, and I, like, called my mom. I was like, Mom, I feel like I'm in this, like, muscle suit. Yeah. Like, I don't even know my body right now. What is this? And I think that there's this really interesting double-edged sword in D1 athletics for a lot of women where... You are. You have to get bigger to be better. Mm-hmm. But then society's norms are stay smaller to look better, and that is no exception in college. Yes. Certainly, exactly. Yeah. And so there's this like huge paradox that you're trying to wrestle with. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't my my tipping point actually. My tipping point for quitting, which I quit after my first year, and then Northwestern won the national championship. Every year I was there after that. Oh, no. Which I did not care at all. <laughs> my dad called me and was like, oh, my God, Northwestern won national championship. Are you upset that you didn't you quit? I was like, definitely not. No. Talk about more pressure. Yeah. Right. Interesting. And Northwestern was hard. Mm-hmm. Um, academically, it's a quarter system, so there was a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, Let's go back to body image. Sure. So... Uh, I think that's such a huge thing um, in the world and of the uh-huh. world and something I can certainly relate to very much. And um, do you think that that was largely born out of your experience growing up and then amplified by society or, I mean, growing up with first sisters, everything's yeah. competitive, including how you look? Like, was there that built in? Where do you think that it was born from for you specifically? Mm. Um I think that there are certain, definitely areas that I was born, the area I was born into has a lot of exercise. It's a humongous exercise culture. Mm-hmm. Even the yoga industry I was born into, yeah. like I started when I was 10 Yeah. and the yoga industry was more aerobic and sweaty and all about, you know, physique, physique mm-hmm. and, and sexuality actually. Yeah. Um, which was very off-putting as a child. Like you yeah. wanted to be loved, liked and... Um, and I would say that that was 
that was very difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. Now, on the flip side, I was always small. Right. Um, so you were praised for how you looked anyway yeah. from the start. Even within my, yeah, even yeah. within my family, I would say my older sister particularly, who I was very close with. Um, she envied your yes. size. And she was, you know, the she one that you funny. said was bigger and beating you up because... Oh, that yeah. was Brittany. No, Maya was oh, the oldest. Ma- okay, got mm-hmm. it. Maya. Okay. And Maya would say to me, like, oh, if only my torso was as long as your torso. I'm like, that is insane. What right. are you talking about? Right. You want my torso? Right. And it's funny to think about, but I think that that's... Um, there, it's both sides. Yeah, but it's all those tiny messages that you don't <laughs> even think about at the time that you're getting feedback about who you are, your worth related to your external experience and yes. your body. And I think that's the thing. I think um, as a parent now uh, and as you potentially a future parent, right, like mm-hmm. that's something I'm really conscious of not, of trying to break that cycle um, because I think that it's so pervasive in our world. And, and also at least in my experience, and I'd love to hear yours, it stole a lot of energy and light and um, from me. And not that it stole it, I think I've overcome it and that was part of my path, but I just think it was such a huge energy suck for so long. Yeah, it. I, I agree. I think that no matter what side of the spectrum you're on, mm-hmm. it um, it does take away from your what you're meant to do. Yeah. Maybe that's the right way yeah. to put it. Like. I don't think I realized as a kid and in my 20s how much time I spent thinking about that Yeah, and how dedicated I had to become to overcoming it. Yeah. And, and it doesn't happen overnight. It's, or even in a decade often. No. Yeah. It, it takes a lot of effort. So yeah. I do think that there is that. there is that piece of being conscious in, the, in younger years of what we're saying, how we say it. Who we're saying it to. Who we're saying it to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the fears that I had about opening Citizen is just even for me being smaller, that people would then think that yoga is only for small people. Yeah. And I'm the, the face and it, it doesn't, that was like not what I wanted. And so how do we, how are we inclusive of everybody, but that's also inclusive of both sides of the spectrum. And yeah. how do you communicate that when, you know, I look different. Right. As well. And and so that was like one of the things I think Citizen has done extremely well. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a, when I was a newer yoga teacher, I was like one of the biggest yoga teachers I knew of and had seen. Cause at that time I was probably, you know, carrying another 30 pounds than I have now. And, yeah. um, I remember feeling really self-conscious about the fact that people were going to, um, invalidate me because of the size of my body. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is so It's such bullshit, really. Um, But I remember feeling that way because it was just for skinny people. But maybe it's not. It's not. But but that was my perception. No, in the sense, like, it's not not correct to have that viewpoint of yourself or your value. Right. But it's also very difficult to override what our culture is telling us, no matter who you are, including me. Yeah. You know? Like, it doesn't matter. Right. Too... too thin by the world standards or, or too overweight by the world standards, it's hard either way. Yes. And you get bullshit either way. And we've had this conversation a thousand times. Same yeah. coin, flip sides. Yeah. Um, and I still, I think so much of that is about control. And I actually feel like for a lot of people, um, for, at least in my experience and in conversations with other women, is that it's, it was just a, it's just a numbing agent also on either side, yep. right? And um, as somebody who had anxiety like you, yep. you know, for me, it was just, it was an, it was a numbing agent. And I wouldn't, I, I realized I said like, oh, like if I could have gotten over it, but really it was ultimately, I think we'd both agree a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in learning about ourselves and what we then are more relatable and what we can offer back because we endured that. And like, oh, poor us, we endured body image issues. But it's a huge thing, in the, you know? It's a huge thing but it's, for a lot it, of people. Yeah, it's not even just that. I mean, that is one part of it. But I do think that, it, again, it goes back to, like, if we're talking about purpose, what are val- what are things that bring you closer to your purpose and what are things that bring you further away from your purpose? Yeah. And I would say that for a lot of people, this specific thing takes up so much energy and yeah. so much mental time that it's like having a white noisemaker in the back of your mind mm-hmm. when you're trying to achieve something that is so special. Yeah. And I think we all are trying to understand like how much physical attention do we give to ourselves? How much emotional attention do we give to ourselves? Mm-hmm. How much intellectual attention do we give to ourselves? And from there... We strike a balance and then it changes based on time, moment in your life and being more perme- permeable with who you are. Yeah. And a deep listening. But if you, but it's difficult to listen when you're, whatever the noise is that you're, I love that white noise analogy, whatever the white noise is for you, I think it, all of it mutes the purpose and drive. So what, um, what shifted for you after college or what, what were you going to be when you grew up when you were in college? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> um, I wanted to be a vet. I'm okay. obsessed with animals. I mean, if you don't know, I'm obsessed with animal trivia specifically. Okay. And um, I couldn't pass chemistry. And so they squashed my dream of okay. being a vet because yeah. I could not do it. And so um, – I think that that probably wouldn't be my path anyway, obviously, because I'm on the right path, but um, I really had no idea. You didn't know. I went through a lot of depression during my college years, a lot. Mm -hmm. I lost a really, like one of my best friends, he Mm -hmm. passed away in college, so that was a very strange experience as well. Like I'd never experienced very close death to me. Um, I experienced a lot of friend betrayal in college, Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of friends dating boyfriends, strange crossover, mm-hmm. very big betrayal stuff. And yeah. I had never experienced that. I was like so con- confused by how people could treat each other so poorly. Yeah. And um, it was really good for me. Mm-hmm. Now, looking back, it was sure. so good for me. And I used to walk with my best friend, Jen, and we, I would say to her, like, God, I just feel like I'm under this dark cloud and my depression will never end. Mm-hmm. We used to talk about God and life and like, what is the point of this? Yeah, Like everybody says like, oh, college is the best years of your life. And I like had the most opposite. I've never been back to Northwestern to this day. Wow. I it's like that painful. Literally was like drove out and was like, see you later. Hmm. Thank you for the bad memories. Thank yeah. you for my two best friends. I'll take those and leave the rest. Wow. And so um, I think that a lot of my decisions were informed by my sister's. Oh, a lot of my, almost all of my life decisions were informed by my sister's. Interesting. Now I just realized that. Like following in their steps or leading. All of it. Yeah. Interesting. So um, the one that's right above me, Brittany, she traveled Southeast Asia by herself for two and a half years. So I was like, oh, that's what you do after college. Ah. So I waitressed at Como's. What? Yeah. Don't think. Okay, okay. This is what I did after graduating. What year was this? Was I there? Were you there Wednesday nights? Yes, I was there. How did our lives be a night? Oh my gosh, that's so funny. How did our lives not? It was crazy. I don't even know how I survived. Okay, first of all, 
I worked from like 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. Then I was my mom's like photography assistant. And actually one of our students came up to me and was like, I met you. You were your mom's photography assistant on my senior photo. Oh, shit. And he was in my yoga class. That's so funny. So um, I worked at Como's, very glamorous <laughs> job that I had. I had the, like, so it's crazy. Then I was working like 14 hours a day, which probably looks very similar to my life now. Yeah. And saved up money, mm-hmm. bought a one-way ticket to Turkey out of all places, and started traveling by myself. And that was part of my independence training. Yeah. I'm not saying you should all go do that. Please, yeah. God, do whatever you want. But um, that was part of my independence training. Like, mm-hmm. I was very scared to do something by myself. Desensitization, man. Yeah. Go after what you're afraid of. Walk right into it. Exactly. Yeah. And so I would, like, travel around. I met some guy that was from Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I did not sleep with him. So that's not. Then I didn't move to Israel, <laughs> Israel to have a relationship with him. Right. But I um, moved to Israel for four weeks and, like, stayed with his family who was there. And then I moved to Bulgaria for a little bit. Then I moved to Italy for three months. And actually, Morgan and I were talking last night um, that I used to do wolfing. She was like, you used to work on farms. I was like, wow. yeah, I used to work on farms. And they were like these, I would do fasting and like, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. And I, this is like the guy that convinced me to be a raw foodist for a long time. Oh my gosh. And then I moved to Australia and I was working um, with um, refugee women. So I was interviewing refugee women from um, Iraq and Iran. And... Um, they were telling me their stories of like escaping their countries, mm-hmm. and so I did a whole presentation with them. How did you get that gig? I don't know. I'm <laughs> like the weirdest person ever. Talk your way into some situations. I think actually, wait. Now that I'm thinking about it, okay. This girl I met in Turkey, which this sounds exactly like my life. This girl yeah. that I met in Turkey, I can't remember her name right now, but she was from Australia, and then she convinced me to like work for her in Australia. I think it was her company. Wow. I don't know. Wow. So I, I moved there. So random. Yeah. And then my, that was part of my independence training. And then I. And think of all the just random, like, I love to think of the random um, things you've probably learned on that trip. Oh right? God, yeah. Like just such random skills and techniques and talking and interviewing. And and I think that one thing that people should know too is like yoga as a practice was in the background of everything I was doing. Mm-hmm. So back then yoga was not cool. I always say this to people. It was not normal to do that. Yeah. Um, the only, I mean. What year was this? This was, well, I practiced yoga from 10 to 18 in Michigan. Yeah. Then from 18 to 22 in Chicago. And okay. I would go to Yoga View and Moksha. And then I would follow this one teacher around um, named Joyce Englander. She now owns her own studio in New York. I went to her studio. Yeah. And um, I would drive from Northwestern and I would spend like four hours at a time practicing because I just hated Northwestern pretty yeah. much. And it was another escape route, yep. just a deal, cope. And, and then I would practice, like, I remember in Turkey I was in this hostel, and the hostel room was, like, so small, and I just would travel with my yoga mat, and I would put it down and, like, move. Because especially back then, the war, I mean, it sounds so, like, old, but the world was not even as westernized in that way, and so running in foreign countries was actually, like, you don't go exercise. Right, it was a bad idea. It yeah. just sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. So yoga was like in the background of all this. It's the way that I took care of myself emotionally mm-hmm. throughout all of these times of being alone, mm-hmm. of being scared. I yeah. had a really sort of traumatic experience in Turkey. So there's a lot of different different pieces to that. How did, um, did your depression 
lift once you got out of Northwestern is depression still something you struggle with? I mean, I mm-hmm. can so relate with the depression, anxiety sort of coexisting, but how did you, how did you, how do you cope with that? Do you, is it still a challenge for you? Um, so I don't think it lifted per se. I think that I had a lot of um, anxiety in the background of my life in general. I would say that now is actually when I have had the least anxiety except for the last three months, which you and I yeah. had talked about. Um, I think that I've always tended towards like depressive tendency. Like, I don't know. Maybe that's not the right way to put it. Like, I'm not depressed. I wasn't depressed per se, but I wasn't happy. Right. Or I just felt like lost. Like, what is the purpose? I mean, that's literally what I used to think. Like, yeah. what is the purpose of this? This is all ridiculous. Why am I even here? Why am I here? What am I doing? How is my life going to be meaningful? I, from the outside, looked like I was just like this nomadic, which I was. Yeah. Lost, which I was. Um, <laughs> puppy. Puppy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that yeah. like was in a lot of pain. Were you spiritual at all in any of this? I was just about to transition into okay, that. Perfect. So like, yes, super. I, um, especially in, co- in, in college, I started really thinking about like, what is God and what is the point of this? I did my study abroad in Thailand. So I did a lot of, se- I lived in Southeast Asia two out of my, four summers and I spent four and a half months in Thailand and Southeast Asia during my college career. And it, it impacted me so deeply. Like I really got into Buddhism to start. And then I transitioned into just like, what is all of this Mm -hmm. thinking? And it wasn't necessarily religious based, but, um, I did a lot with like crystals like I used to think like crystals were going to solve like all of my like problems listen I'm a big fan of crystals I I don't think they're going to solve your problems (laughs) I think they're helpful tools (laughs) along with many others yes but that was I would like when I was living in Australia I would have like a bad day and be like oh I have to find a crystal but really it was just like I had to figure out how to manage my inner self and I, I couldn't figure it out in that way yeah and it's grounding and I think for you you have always sought people who are grounding because that isn't necessarily your nature to be right. so earthy. And so it makes sense to me that you'd be drawn to crystals, which would ground you, you know, yeah. rocks, literally earth. earth. Yeah. Um, I was a medium for a while. <laughs> like actively? actively? Yeah. Actively mediuming. Yeah. Okay. People would pay me. Wow. To do mediumship work. Okay. Yes. Um, who did you speak to when you were mediuming? Like, well, well, who guided you to actually get information? So there's, um, this is very funny. Okay. Most people don't really know that, but that to me is... You did let on to that, by the way, when you were like this like kid when I was teaching, when I just started teaching at Shelter, and we yeah. had like our one moment conversation before I we remember went to it, India. I remember that yeah. conversation. You were like, yeah. are you sure you want to go? I was like, I'm going yes. to India. Yes, yeah. go ahead. But you told me that. So tell me more about your mediumship. Well, that we can talk more about this, but um, that was like, I, I actually can't remember because I think I sort of like have a, a little bit of like a brownout moment in my yeah. life where... Um, it was after my, Maya passed away, my oldest sister, which we can talk about. Yep. And, but I thought it was before, but actually now that I'm like recalling all this, I think it was after, um, I have a friend who I think I was trying to find out about myself, like how I was special. Maybe Mm. that's the way to think about it. Interesting. Like there has to be something beyond this and there has to be something that I can do that adds value to this world. Yeah. And... If I couldn't figure it out here, it was like, okay, let me go somewhere else. Yeah. 
So I started doing um, all this like energy healing work for yeah. people. Um, and I was in this meditation class and they were leading us through some stuff. And I basically started channeling people. Yeah. And I was like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And my friend Mary and I would like do this all the time together. Yeah. And I started seeing people. And finally, I stopped because I realized that as helpful of a tool that it can be to people, it wasn't changing me. Mm. It didn't evolve me. It didn't give me a greater sense of the world at all. And it Mm -hmm. didn't change how I was handling myself. And I think that that was the underlying theme of my 20s. Like, not how necessarily can I impact other people all the time, but how can I change this inner landscape that feels like it has so much turmoil. Mm, that's so interesting. I think like um, it's so fascinating to think like that that was a potential doorway or path opening up to you, mm-hmm. which ultimately may have given you what you wanted in the mm-hmm. long run, but at some point you decided not this way mm-hmm. and that was it. And that's okay. Yeah. And it's totally okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think mediumship is a valuable tool for people, for many people, um, but um, it wasn't the, you were at that fork and you decided to kind of turn back and go a different way. Yeah. And I think that I was looking at, I was also in this, enrolled in this school. Oh my God. I, you would have been like, what is going on? Maybe. If you ask, like, I Alex, love it. Yeah, <laughs> if you ask like Alex Herman, yeah. who's our acupuncturist at the studio, she'll tell you that when she met me, re-met me, cause we've known each other forever. She was like, you were pretty out there. And I was pretty out there. I was in this like energy healing school in Florida that I enrolled in. I would go down to Florida. And like what I found is like everybody's just crying and like talking about their childhood all the time. (laughs) And I was like, okay, like enough. I got to like, I I can't like go back there. I can't be that emotional. I have to find something to hook onto Mm -hmm. that gives me logical reason that was sort of where probably Vedanta came in. That makes so much sense. It's so interesting because I would think a really valid energy school would not be about crying about your childhood. You'd be oh my god, there was bit, so much of it. It was like this deeper work happening. I know it might not have been in the right school for yes, such things. Exactly. Okay, so let's talk about the the um, elephant in the room, which is that your sister, um, your sister Maya. So let's will you talk that because that'll lead to the next couple steps, I think. Sure. Um, so when I was living in Australia. Um, well, my older sister, Maya, and actually there's a documentary, if you're interested in watching it, yeah. of Two Minds. Um, my family's story is featured in I chose not to be in it. It was very close to after my sister passed away, and I just could not handle any kind of exposure around it. Not that I was ashamed, just I didn't want to talk on a camera about you it. You weren't healed enough yeah. to do it. Yeah. Um, and it, it really, it, it shows like, it's an insight into bipolar disorder. So my sister was bipolar. She's been bipolar basically since she came out of the womb. Yeah. Very interesting person. We had a up and down relationship my whole life. And then in my twenties, when I was going through a really extreme depression, mm-hmm. um, very borderline suicidal, if not suicidal, she flew me out to Colorado and like helped me and yeah. like told me like, everything's okay. Like you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a right um, and she got married and she got married to a man who was extremely abusive to her and you can't abuse somebody who has mental illness. Right. Partic- you can't abuse anybody. That, yeah, obviously. Okay, full stop. Right. Yeah. But you can't abuse somebody. One, he also did not like that she took medicine. So it was this really terrible recipe of like shaming somebody for their mental illness, not wanting them to take their medicine, but then expecting them to be a normal person. Right. And, Super unfair. Yeah, yeah. And he was very emotionally abusive. And um, he was seeing somebody else. 
seven months into their marriage. She couldn't handle it, obviously. He wanted to get divorced, which was, like, heartbreaking to her. She couldn't... She just wanted to be loved. I mean, I think that that's the underlying theme of everybody's life, but I think that's the underlying theme of my sister's life because she was so different from everybody, even though um, she owned her own yoga studio. She was Mm -hmm. a yoga teacher. And um, I was in Australia at the time. Mm -hmm. I was in Darwin. And we had this, like, really incredible experience. Remember that. At this point in my life, I was I still am very intuitive. Like, that's how I teach yoga classes. Like, I can... I know what you're thinking. Yeah. And sometimes that's very hard to manage as a person, especially managing so many people. Yeah. Like before you, even though you don't think I know, because I look like I'm never paying attention, I'm always paying attention. Yes. Like even from afar, I'll be like, ooh, something's wrong. And sometimes I can't fix it as a leader in the company and I just have to deal with it. Yep. But that is where intuition to me comes in is that it's, you can't fix anything, everything with intuition, but sometimes you just know it. So it's in... I was in Australia, and we were taking a road trip from Queensland to Brisbane. No, from Darwin to Brisbane through Queensland. Okay. And I really didn't want to do it. I was traveling at the time with somebody that I was dating. Sorry, husband. (laughs) (laughs) And um, our, our car broke down. Funny enough, I have, I have had a blinky that I kept for a very long time, mm-hmm. and I left it for the first time ever. I forgot it in Darwin, and I didn't realize it, and then I was like, we have to turn back, and then our car literally broke down. Wow. Divine intervention. And I had this like thought that I still distinctly remember somebody saying to me, like, you need to fly to Brisbane. Now, you have to remember, I was trying to save money. I was on my own dime traveling yeah. the world. Yeah. It was like a $700 ticket, which is a lot for yeah. that time. Yep. And I was like, okay, I need to fly. And I said to the person I was traveling with, I was like, you know, we really should just fly. And he was like, okay, let's fly. It was so, like, I was like, wow, what a weird thought. Why would I fly? Yeah. And I had been really depressed all week, like, having, like, really bad nostalgia about my life and my family and my sisters. And I remember, like, this thinking about, like, my grandfather, who was very close to my older sister, who's very close to mine, who's very close to us. Like this like memory of him kept coming up. And I kept saying to my person I was traveling with like, oh my God, I just miss my family. And he was like, you're such a depressed person. He said that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, God, I don't know what's wrong. Like something's really wrong. Mm -hmm. I just kept saying that something's wrong. I just, uh. And so I emailed Maya and she had emailed me back. Like her husband at the time wants a divorce. And I was like, wrote, wrote her back and was like, hey, so what? Like, mm-hmm. I will come home. I will help you through this. Yeah. Like, we all love you. It, this is good. We had already ar- had an intervention with her about his abuse. Okay. So this was, like, not surprising, and we yeah. wanted to get her out. Yeah. It was a very, very abusive relationship. Yeah. And um, I was walking through Darwin, and I just, like, had this vision. I will never forget this vision of, like, it was so weird, but... I'm going to say it. Say it. It's weird. (laughs) Um, Like, of her leaving the earth. Yeah. And she was, like, all these different colors. And I was, like, what is going on right now? Like, I was, like, something's wrong. Yeah. 
I pushed it out of my mind because it was just like, what am I talking about? Like, this is crazy, okay? We booked our flight to Brisbane that night, and I got, like, relief. Like, ah, okay, I'm on the right path. This is much better. I feel good. I was eating dinner, and we were, like, having a good time. Went to bed, still feeling, like, very off. Like, I don't like this, but I'm like, okay. Like, I sent my email to Maya. I missed her call, which is, like, probably why I get so so much anxiety when people, like, call me often or something. I'm like, oh, God, what's wrong? And then the next morning, um, we were at the library in Darwin, mm-hmm. and I opened my email, and I had like fifty-five emails. Oh no! And I was like, "Uh oh!" I like didn't even read an email. Did not read one email. I grabbed the phone, and I like did a scan. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, it's not my grandmother. Kay. Like something's wrong." Yeah. So I called my parents. Nobody answered. Okay. And so you have to understand, if we were in the middle of Queensland, nobody would have been able to get a hold of me in Jewish yeah. tradition. If somebody dies, you have to bury them within seven days. Yeah. So if you had taken the road trip and kept going and you were stuck, you would have been totally screwed and yeah. out of the loop. Out of the loop. I didn't have a... Remember, there's no cell phones. Yeah. There's no way to get a hold of us other yeah. than this. And I mean, there was what a cell phone, but he... It was like... Yeah, but international it, cell It was phones, just like, yeah, you didn't have, have like a phone number. I don't know. I don't remember what we had. It was 2007. Okay. Um, it was still, it was still difficult. My sister lived in Germany. It was difficult to talk to anybody internationally at that point. Exactly. Yeah. And especially in the middle of the wilderness. And yeah. so, um, I called my friends who knows my sister extremely well. And I was like, okay, just say it. Yeah. I didn't. You already knew. I knew. I was like, just say it. And she was like, where are you? We've been looking for you. Sit down. Who are you with? Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, just say, say what it. you have to say. And I remember it was like a movie. It was yeah. exactly what the movies do. It's like the world slows down. Mm-hmm. You just are like, everything's in slow motion. Yeah. And I was just like, I couldn't. I, I mean, I don't even, re- I remember what happened. Um, it's just, it was a very surreal moment. And what I learned from it was how taken care of we are in moments of trauma. Yeah. So, for example, the flight I had booked to Brisbane was my fastest way possible to get out of Australia to get home for the funeral. And by taking care of, you mean even like the universe yeah. said, your intuition said, go to Brisbane because that was, yeah. and then it ended up being the most direct it flight. It is literally the most, it was the most direct flight. And then I, it was so strange. We were on this bus leaving. Sorry if this is like, oh, no, this is great. You're okay, good. fine. I'm like, is this, are you guys excited about this? It's fascinating. <laughs> is this <Just> entertaining? <laughs> um, I was waiting for the bus. And this woman comes up to me, and she was like, why would you come to Brisbane during mm-hmm. this time? I mean, uh, Darwin during this time. I was like, what do you mean? She was like, oh, this is suicide season here. What? And I was like, wait. And I can't remember the context of what she was saying it, but that's verbatim what this woman said to me. And I was like, huh? Like, what? what is happening? And then on every single flight, I had four different legs. Mm-hmm. I was having like massive anxiety attacks. Sure. You know, there was no, I had to call my parents on a payphone. I didn't have a cell phone. Right. I still hadn't gotten a hold of them. And I think that the hardest thing about suicide, I don't know, maybe it's not the hardest thing for some people, but I thought like the hardest thing for me was figuring out how my sister killed herself. That mm. was very traumatizing. So. Actually hearing how she did it was yes, the most traumatizing. Was one of the most traumatizing. Yeah. 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 And, um. I opened an email from my mother, which literally, she doesn't remember writing this, and this is very sort of sad, but graphic. She, the email wrote to me was, Maya hung herself, come home. That was it. Oh, my God. 
And so that's actually... It's like all she could muster to put out into the world to find you at that moment. And I was just... It was like... It was so sad. Yeah. Like what pain. That's such a... To me, that's such one of the most violent things. I've always actually really been weirded. Like that was one of the hardest things. Like if you ever watch Braveheart. Yeah. I can't watch those scenes even when I was a kid. Like that was just so violent to die like that. Not that it's not violent to die any other way. So I think that that was one of the hardest things. I'm sure that other people who've lived through, like, one of their loved ones in suicide, they might say the same thing. Yeah. And so I think that my whole life was just this big blackout. I don't really remember a lot of it. That's For where the you time and afterward. I met. Yeah. Um, yeah, you were, you were like, I don't in know. Survivor, survival mode, but, like, as numbed out and disconnected as possible, oh I God. think. Yeah. You know? And so after that is when you ended up deciding very pretty quickly after that to go to India, yes? About a year and a half later. Okay. Um, death and suicide, I think suicide specifically, really tears a family apart. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I think we could also do. I mean, I think part of what Citizen does is it creates, for me, it creates this beautiful community that I could not find anywhere else in the world. Yeah. And, but also, most importantly, created a family that I felt like I had lost. Mm-hmm. So that was the whole start of Citizen. It was just this family. And sure, it's gotten bigger and like people view it as this big business. But actually, the way that I view it, maybe it's not a family per se, but it's, it's this like bubble of connection. Yeah, interwoven and, people and lives and um, understanding and compassion and commitment mm-hmm. to each other. I think we saw that when Anne lost Brian, that yeah. people really rose up. And that was such a validation of the work that we've done. We've done. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, that, I think that that's something to talk about for sure, that the, the survivors of suicide really struggle because everybody's going through their own very individualized experience of guilt. Yeah. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, um, all of it. I haven't, um, I mean, I, I lost a friend to suicide when I was 15, but it was, it was so far removed really at that point um, because of just life. But um it's so interesting, grief, number one, but also just I think that guilt is exactly the, the biggest thing with suicide in general. And um, since I'm still d- deeply in some of that metaphysical, spiritual stuff, um, what, something that was comforting to me that I either read or heard while talking to some of my friends and mentors who are in that, in that more metaphysical work um, was that essentially that the universe does provide and, um, and does help and send in help when possible and that there are times when someone's suicide no matter nobody could have saved them right and like learning to really believe and trust that there's nothing that you could have done Mm -hmm. that it wasn't it wasn't on you and that you showed up every way that you could have um is really really powerful so in that process of of grieving and that year and a half of feeling really lost um you were at the the studio that I was teaching at at the time, Yoga Shelter, and yep. that's where we met. And part of their relationship, the owners at the time, and, and their program was really closely tied into this Vedanta Academy. And so I do remember that conversation in the Birmingham studio when you were saying you were going to India, and I was like, don't go, because I like to tell people their business at that point, and I had my own stuff about it. But obviously for you, it was the right choice mm-hmm. at the time. Um, what did India give you that you needed at the time? Logic. <laughs> okay. Um, I think that India gave me 
a lot of deep self-reflection and the answer to the question that I had been asking for so long, which is like, what is this point of suffering? Like, why do we suffer? And Mm -hmm. why, what, like, basically, like, what am I seeking? And I realized through the path that I was seeking, like, just a liberation from all the mental strain about body, mind, and intellect. Okay. It also gave me a lot of space for my family, which didn't really um, work (laughs) when I came back. Right. Um, But I think that... It set the groundwork for everything that I do now, which mm-hmm. I did not know was going to happen. I didn't go to India for any specific reason. So I think that part of what I also see a lot right now is like very motivated action. Everything's motivated. It's like you have a motive for when you talk to somebody. You have a motive for how you post something. Mm-hmm. You have a motive for doing teacher training. You have a motive for leading a workshop. You like Obviously, this is in our world. Yeah. You have a motive for having a conversation. And I think part of the beauty of my path in India was I had zero motive. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, a motive of self-healing, sure. Yeah. But I wasn't trying to exchange with it. Yeah, I had no idea what I was going to do with it. I didn't really care at the point. I literally was going to India just to be in India and study philosophy that I thought was logical mm-hmm. and gave me a deeper transcendental understanding, but also a psychological understanding of myself. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't really know it was going to do that to its fullest. Right. I didn't know how hard living in India was. I thought it was going to be like this yeah. great, glamorous, I'm living in India experience. Yeah. Living in an ashram yeah. and everything's blissful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think that that was the beauty of my experience in India, is that it had, there was no reason really, other than my own healing. Yeah. It it's like doing a good example would be like, I'm not saying it's wrong to do teacher training to become a teacher, yeah, but it's like just doing teacher training or a training for the love of learning, yeah, and I just love learning, yeah, I love that logical piece of being in a space where everybody's sharing ideas freely, um, and so I left against everybody else's wishes. Nobody wanted me to move to India. Mm-hmm. Um, my family particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, they were worried about you? Yes. Everybody was very... Well, they were worried about them. No offense, guys. They were worried about themselves. Yeah. Um, they did not want one of their children further away from them. That was my parents. Yeah. Um, my sisters totally thought I was insane. And most importantly, which is very interesting, is um, one of my sisters had said, you know, you're going to be left behind by all of your friends. By the time you get home, everybody's going to be married. They're all going to have kids. And you're going to be just like... Nothing, sort of. Interesting. And I was like, cool, yeah. see ya. And my friends didn't understand it because mm-hmm. you're not allowed to come home for three years. Yeah. Um, so it does sound like a cult. So I get it now yeah. as like a, an adult. But like I understood too that this was my calling. I was going to say, how do you, because um, here's, this is what I'm really hearing from this and so many of these things is, and what I think is so important for people to start to do in their lives if they're feeling discontented um, is to start looking at those moments and those pivot points and asking themselves that very simple question, like, am I retreating back into safe- safety or stepping forward into what I know is the next right thing for me? Mm-hmm. And in spite of everybody saying to you, no, 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 you're crazy, it's a cult, it's all this time, you're going to miss out on life, all of the reasons not to, something inside you said yes, and you were mm-hmm. brave enough to say yes to it. Yes. And that's the same thing when we talk about Citizen. When we yeah. get there, that's exactly what happened when we started Citizen. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's the exact same calling. It's like, and when I make up on my mind, which can be very like intense and you can feel it. Like I call myself sometimes like a master manifester. Yeah. Like if I make up my mind about something, I am going to do it. And it doesn't matter what it is. Like I will just create it like through like sheer energy, grit, love, will, positive intention and like Mm -hmm. purity. Yeah. You know, I just went there to learn. I didn't think that this is what I would be doing with it. I never wanted to teach yoga. Yeah. I did not do a traditional yoga training. I did yoga medics training with you. And then I taught your training and sort of taught you a little bit along with it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that just being immersed in a a yoga practice for 19 years and then starting to teach while I taught in India, which is sort of where I started to learn alignment. Yeah. Like I started to appreciate maybe is the right way to say it. Like, um, so yeah, I lived in the academy for two and a half years. I moved home early because I had um, a hormone imbalance called PMDD. Um, if you are a woman out there and you have PMDD, acupuncture was the thing that helped me the most. Um, yoga and acupuncture. And um, there's a supplement called Dim Detox that's really excellent. Okay. Um, and it was debilitating to have a hormone imbalance like that. Sure. And Swamiji made me move home. Interesting. I lived at the academy and w- worked in his house. And I was the first Westerner to ever work in his house. Interesting. But I had no motive to try to do that. Yeah. It was a surrender of like, I had no value for him. I didn't yeah. know who he was. Yeah. And I lived there studying a philosophy that inspired me, but I had no idea why. Like chanting would come and I would cry. Yeah. But I did things there that I never thought were possible. Mm-hmm. I started singing, um, which was a very empowering experience for me. I mm-hmm. like chanted the Gita on stage in Bangalore. But they put me behind the two Indian girls, not with a mic in front of my face because I couldn't do it with a true Indian accent. So yeah. they just sort of placated me, which was very nice of them. Yeah. Um, but I found a love for philosophy that made sense. Yeah. And that's the background to me of like how we do business. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people say like yoga and philosophy, um, business and philosophy are separated. And I see them as the most aligned align things as you possibly like two areas of life two arenas of life as possible yeah and but isn't that is it because it's about integrity it's about so much um part of uh I'm gonna go a little bit on a tangent maybe but part of business effective business and something that I think citizen taught me was accountability Mm mm-hmm when I was in my own stuff, and I still was in my own stuff, even when I opened Citizen at 29, mm-hmm. I was still in my own stuff, in my own stories, and I really struggled still with a lot of anxiety and depression. And um, I had to show up for mm-hmm. something higher than myself. Yeah. And that's where I started to actually put into practice everything that I was taught in India. It wasn't when I moved home. When I moved home, I thought I was going to be like this changed, awesome person. And I was like such a mess. Yeah. It was the darkest time of my life. Yeah, I remember. From 27 to 28 yeah. probably was the saddest time in my life. Mm-hmm. Really, even at, it was even worse than after my sister passed away because mm-hmm. I didn't. I was like, I'm not changed because I couldn't find like, well, I have all this stuff now, and now I have nowhere to put it. Mm-hmm. I have nothing that's inspiring me. Yeah, I have it's no community. Like you paused your healing while in India. Like you're in this other insulated place in some ways, and studying something and pouring into something, but then you got home and you had to like wake back up to the loss again and the grief again and the pain or you were, and you were expecting to be having been changed. Yes. Transformed. Transformed. I was going to be transformed. And also it was the first 
I always tell you this, but it's real. Like I didn't know what smartphones were. Yeah. And I moved home after flip phones and everybody was texting and I felt so isolated, disconnected. Like why isn't anybody talking to each other? It was Mm. so, such a profound shift to come back into society and be like, huh? Yeah. And so I think that that's something that people have to, we, you and I were talking before this about unseen, Yeah, the unseen path. Mm-hmm. Like you see me now and you, you and fancy, um, whatever other people think, but you and fancy are like, wow, like you're great. Mm-hmm. But you understand my, even though you are learning more about me, you still see, have seen my whole development into myself. It wasn't this like perfect road. Right. It was hard and took so much effort and so much time and... And it's, it's still happening. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. still happening. I still have learned so much this year yeah. about myself and was very challenged this year. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the, the, the heart of it is the people that I know who are living a life of purpose didn't have an easy path. In fact, I hardly know anyone who's really feeling connected to something meaningful that had an easy path. Um, and yeah, sure, some things are easier than others, right? Like, like you and I, but we didn't have to worry about food or clothing or holes in our socks, right? right. But we had other challenges that. But we I had faced. like holes in my whole soul. Like yeah. actually, I was just like, I felt empty for so much of yeah. my life, and I didn't know what to value. Yeah. And. Um, so you came ahead. back, and we met at Yoga Medics. Yes. Um, because you because Sarah was close to your sister, and you yeah. have family friends, and Sarah who owns Yoga Medics was like, here, come work for me. Do something, right? Yeah, and my work capacity when I moved home was three hours. If yeah. I, I used to not leave my house for, nobody really knows this actually, I couldn't leave my house for longer than three hours or four hours at a time when I moved home from India. Because you'd get too anxious? Yeah. I had like massive social anxiety. Um, you would never know that. Um, and I worked with Anne and Anne, which I call the Anne clan, <laughs> and they were this anchor into the world for me, like Sarah, Ann, and Ann created sort of like, okay, I have a purpose-ish. I don't have to be that accountable to anything that much. And I can still like go out and then come back to my house and do what I need to do, mm-hmm. which is just isolate. Yeah. Um, and then I started to get my grip a little bit more, but I was not healed about Maya. I was, my family was not healed. Mm-hmm. I felt more isolated to, from people and friends. But I, what I actually started to do um, is I was like, okay, I'm going to start to meet people. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of catapulted myself into this version of who I am a little bit more now, which is very natural for me because I'm very chatty. Um, I started just putting myself out there. And when I talk about building community, I always mm-hmm. say like be confidently uncomfortable because talking to people you don't know and networking is just being confidently uncomfortable all the time. Yeah. Like it's not going to be comfortable to meet more people. Yeah. Um, well, and I think that we, I must have, I'm trying to think of, I remember the day and the conversation we mm, had that, yep. that citizens, the idea of citizen was born because I was really unhappy where I was teaching and felt really stuck mm-hmm. without options. And probably you had to listen to me bitch about that a lot often, right? And I think you hadn't found no. a yoga home um, at that point yourself, yes. right? Since you got home and you were like, maybe I should open a, a yoga studio. studio. And I was like, fuck yes. Like somebody get me out. It was like a savior in that moment. I was like, please. And I remember literally saying to you, if they build it, they will, if you build it, they will come. And I was like, no way. Yeah. Like this is insane. One, I had never taught in a yoga studio 
in my life. Yeah. I taught yoga in India because um, I was forced to teach by Sanandaji um, because I knew the most about yoga. Yeah. But I loved it. It was like, whoa, this is like breathing. And I used to teach the yoga medics back to basics classes yeah. and I absolutely love them. And it's so funny because we were talking about what is the unseen yoga, the path of a yoga teacher. Yeah. And you think it's like being in this big studio, but my whole path was like, we were in this office building and there were two people. We yeah. were in this small space and there was one person. Oh, nobody showed up multiple times. Yeah. Excellent. Yep. Um, but I was doing it because I loved it. Not because I was motivated to create something like this big thing. Now, once you and I started talking about citizen, yeah. again, it goes back to like master manifester. Yeah. I was looking for a space for yoga medics and I met my old field hockey coach in Commonwealth yep. where I used to hang, hang out, live a lot, AKA live <laughs> a lot. Yeah. And this was before Commonwealth was even that busy. It was like yeah. new. It was new. Yeah. It was very new. And, um, I saw her and I was like, Hey, I'm looking for a space for this company I'm working for. And she was like, actually I have this really interesting space mm-hmm. that I want to show you. I went to her, their architecture firm, her and Tamash and Gail and Tamash. And I saw these plans and I left in the same way that happened like with India. I was driving yeah. home. It was raining. I think it was April 7th or 6th. I was listening to Florence and the Machines. Mm-hmm. Dog days are over. Yeah. And it was like a lightning bolt. Yep. I'm going to open my own studio. Yep. And that was it. Yep. And from that moment, my whole life changed. Like all the depression that I was feeling was like lifted. Like, oh, I have a channel for all the goodness that I want to pump into this world. That's, that's exactly how I feel about depression and anxiety and my own experience too, is that once I felt like I had purpose, it was like the rest of it um, just sort of melted away. And I think for so many people, depression and anxiety is this flag being waved in your face. And I'm not saying some of us don't have chemical imbalances, because yes. you and I both actually probably do, yes. right? But I think so much of that was fed by this desire to contribute in a positive way and nowhere to put that energy yeah. and this feeling of feeling stuck. And those lightning bolts are what we are so vital. Yeah. And, I, you know, it was really interesting because nobody in Michigan believed in alignment. So Anne and I... Well, well, and Nancy, Linda Kay, and a few others believed yeah. in, in alignment. alignment. But yes. that's what I mean, not, like, in a not a studio sense. Mm-hmm. And so when we started dreaming of Citizen, it was sort of like, okay, all bodies, real alignment teaching. Yeah. And when you understand Vedanta, Vedanta is precision of thought, emotion, body. Yeah. And to me, like when you flow how you feel, you're doing everything not yoga. Yeah. No, no offense. Sorry. But it... It's actually complete opposite because even if you read like Gita, Upanishads, if you talk, if you think of any tradition of spirituality, it's discipline is not synonymous with repression. Yeah. So you're not in a, in an alignment experience in yoga. You're actually having and receiving more and you're having an optimal experience, not a repressed experience. Yeah. So it's not like don't lift your leg like that so that we repress you or your body's repressed. And you can't be free. You can't be free. You right. actually are more free because if you align, then all of your arteries are aligning, your nadis are aligning, and then you actually your have energy a, channels are aligning. Yeah, yeah. You are having like a feeling of freedom within your physical form, which is very un- uncommon yeah. to feel free in your vessel. Yep. Um, and so... And yeah. that's one of the reasons we started thinking about it. So alignment first, there was like, okay, here's our product. Mm-hmm. But our product, really, you and I talked a lot about this, is like 
yoga was just the excuse to create a community. Mm-hmm. And for me, like it was alignment of body, but it was also alignment of um, being, right? Mm-hmm. I think one reflects the other um, and that that an, an inclusive space where people were free to be authentically them and know specific, as much as you are attracted and love the philosophy of Vedanta, it wasn't like this is the way, this is the truth, the only way, the light. You know, I needed, yeah. I needed to know that my version of spirituality, which speaks the same truth as yours, um, yeah. but, but feels very different from the outside or, or, or sounds different, right? But we, I, want, I was so desperate for space that was like there wasn't, that we could we could honor the alignment of the body, but also align allow people to align to who they are. Yep. And that's you know I think that's such a powerful space. I always think of the analogy that they've done with studies with children. They give they put children on a playground in the middle of an open field, and they measure how far away from the play structure mm-hmm. the kids will go. With no fence, kids stay within something like two to three feet from the mm-hmm. edge of the play structure, and then they take a fence and they move it. 25 feet around the perimeter and they create a boundary Mm -hmm. and then the kids play freely within that space. That's Mm -hmm. all alignment is. Here's the boundary so that you can then create freedom for yourself, your being, your life. And then you can, you can translate that again into like, what is your purpose? Mm -hmm. So I just didn't, I couldn't figure out how to align philosophy into this world. So Mm -hmm. it was a, it was very confusing. Yeah. Like how do I take two worlds and fuse them? Yeah. And that's where Citizen came to being, which was this fusion of yoga philosophy, deep yoga philosophy, intelligent teaching, mm-hmm. which was also extremely important to both you and I. Mm-hmm. And um, Inclusion. Yeah, and inclusion. And like I always say my rule in life is no friend groups because then you automatically very indirectly are excluding somebody. And yep. so it's like, well, who's your friend group? Nobody. Right. And even within Citizen, I think one of the things that I taught myself well, I like to meet everybody. I remember when I met Todd for the first time. I really met him in a park, and that's actually where I met Sujin. Mm-hmm. We were practicing in his park class in Shane Park. And um, I was like, my uncle was like, hey, you should really hire this guy. He really is great. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So I went to his class. I was like, okay, he's great. Yeah. Okay, I still had no idea really what he was doing. Yeah. Not in general, but just like, what is his, what's his bob, as he would say. Yes. So he met me in Starbucks in Birmingham to talk to me about the studio that I was opening that I'd never taught in a yoga studio yeah. in Michigan before. Yeah. And just so everybody knows, like, as a yoga teacher, I was just hustling. I was renting space. I was paying for space. I pretty much was losing money on every mm-hmm. single class that I was teaching, but it was really just about honing my own skill, understanding who my identity was as a yoga teacher, mm-hmm. and serving people. Yeah. It didn't matter how many people came to class. Like, I was there. But you knew you were feeding your soul. It felt something yeah. that was replenishing you and that you you deeply needed that at that time, too. Yes. A hundred percent. And Todd said to me um, in Starbucks, he was like, I don't, I'm confused. Are you running for mayor or are you opening a yoga studio? Because every person I'd see, I'd be like, hey, hey, what's yeah. up? I'm opening this yoga studio. And so even though I wasn't a known figure in the yoga industry, I made myself this known figure within the community because it's sort of like... Once I understood that I was doing this for suicide prevention and my own mental health and your mental health and everybody's mental health in some way, shape, or form, I didn't care about myself anymore. Mm. It was like, okay, I don't care that I'm awkward right now because I have something bigger that I'm attached to. And so I was willing to sacrifice my own comfort of self, my own, if you will, like dreams of my own individual fame. Yeah for a group of people. Like I do not desire to be famous. Right. That is not why I'm teaching yoga. Right. 
I don't want to be a traveling yoga person. Right. I want a rooted, grounded community of people and then offer that same kind or type or quality of community to other people. Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting when I was first opening, some um, people were really mad, as you can imagine. Like, I understand, like, being threatened by new studios. It's mm-hmm. not easy to be a business owner. Sure. Um, but I just kept thinking, like, but I'm attached to something that means something. Like, I'm not trying to create a new yoga school, even though Citizen has really good classes. I'm not trying to create a name for myself. Right. I'm not trying to, like, outdo somebody. Like, yeah. I didn't open the studio to, like, put somebody else out of business. Right. I think you were meeting a need that yeah. you saw. I mean, in that's... myself and you, not yeah. just the world, but yes, the world too. Yeah. But, but if it was in you and I... Um, then it was in everyone, or others at least, and there was that desire for it to be created. And I, and I think that's really the beauty um, of, of all of it is, and, and being a successful business is, is what you, you said, servant leadership, yeah. right? And um, even for me with this podcast and for teaching yoga and all of those, the things I do, we have very similar feelings about it. Um, none of it has ever been for fame or glory. Mm-hmm. It was simply, I felt called to be of service in this way. Mm-hmm. And I just keep stepping back into that call. And this mm-hmm. is why I started a podcast. And I just keep trying to answer the call, mm-hmm. right? And listen when I feel called. Yeah. And I think that it's very important for all of us to understand that none of the pieces of my story, going back to what you started with, none of the pieces of my story made sense individually. Right. That's very they never hard. do. Right. That yeah. it's very hard to understand. Like yeah. none of our pieces make sense individually. But then when you like thread through your life, yep. I could never have guessed that this is not what I wanted to do in my life. Yeah. I didn't dream of opening a yoga studio. Yeah. I had no clue that this was my destiny. Mm-hmm. But I just kept doing like that was advice I had once been given as well. Like just it's not the next right thing. Yeah, I say it all the time. And and Vedanta taught me that. Yeah. Actually as well. Like if you hook yourself to an ideal and you're consistently just doing the next right action, yeah. you don't have to worry about being successful. And that is where people are very confused. And I was also very confused. Like I had so much anxiety about, well, am I gonna be successful? And you and Anne used to after we opened Citizen and Royal Oak, you know. And probably all of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Still to this day. Yeah. I'll call fans or somebody and be like, okay, are we, are we going to do okay? What if we fail? Like, mm-hmm. what if this doesn't work? Like, what if people don't understand our teaching? What if, oh man, like, what if our classes aren't this? Or what yeah. if people don't understand our message? And, you know, and it's always like, no, they, it'll be okay. You know, yeah. and you have to coach yourself into... Um, integrity, integrity, organic growth and trusting that if you just keep stepping into the next right thing and creating something, this, this place from such honest love, service and compassion for the community, the right people will find you and and continue to to support the the vision as long as you stay clear with that. And you've always been clear, even though you might get distracted or overwhelmed or whatever else, but you've always had this clear vision of what you're doing. Yeah. I think that this year was a year, like I was thinking about it. It's like the fifth year of citizen. And Todd would always say, like, five means change, which yeah. it does. Yeah. And we've seen a lot of change this year. I think that that was really hard on me just to understand, like, watching our teachers grow up yeah. in a good way, like, mature and, like, seeing, like, well, how do we fit the needs of who were once 25-year-old teachers who are now 30-year-old teachers, mm. the teachers who are now were 30 that are now 35, teachers who were... 29 and now have babies mm-hmm. like how do we as a company not evolve just with our students but with our teachers and this is something where um I had to go back to why 
this year very strongly. Mm-hmm. Why am I doing this? Why do I work so hard? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like a normal day for me is 14 to 15 hours. Yeah. And I love it. And it's very hard for me to um, distinguish between my personal life and work because I love what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I have to create boundary with my personal life. Because you have a husband now. I do have a husband now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he, it, it is. I mean, that is an interesting part of my life now that I didn't have before, mm-hmm. where I could sacrifice all day long for my individual self, but really it was for this mission that I yeah. am so passionate about. Yeah. And love so much. And I love teaching so much. Like, I didn't expect to love teaching this much. I thought, like, as the business grew, I would, like, pull myself out of classes and then do more business. And I think that... What I've learned about myself is actually, like, I love them equally. Yeah. Which is a very weird experience. Yeah. Like, um, I was touching, talking to a good friend in L.A. who owns some studios, and she was like, well, no, the more I open my company, uh, the more I want to run my company and the less I want to teach. And I'm sort of in this, like, well, feeding my soul is teaching. That's exactly what I say. I literally will never not teach, teach. as long as somebody will hire me, namely yes. you, yes. to feed my soul. Yeah. Because um, I need it. It's I need it. Yeah. And that's, I think, getting clear about why you teach mm-hmm. has been something that has been very loud for me this year. And helping Not your teachers learn, learn to that. do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't know if I can. I, I don't know. I think that we can as ex, as examples. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we go back to... As much as I had to surrender to my own self and my own process, like you're a really good example, actually. I don't even know if I told you this. It's great. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think that like even in your teaching as a witness to you, yeah. I've seen you go into this like very passionate place of like yoga, yoga, yoga. Yeah. And then sort of like the I'm a mom, 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 yeah. yoga on the side. Mm-hmm. And then, but you never broke our relationship ever. It was just no. like, you know, a case... This isn't my priority right now. And I was like, great, I'll respect that. Like, yeah. it's your priority in the sense of when you come, you are teaching. But, hey, I need to get give up my Wednesday 4.30. And I was yeah. like, what? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'm like, great. Yeah. I'm going to support you in your dreams. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I secretly hate this. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I think that the beauty of it was like you always, no matter how much you needed to grow in a different area of your life, we always kept our relationship very clear. Mm-hmm. And now watching you come back sort of full circle where you're like, oh, wait, I'm ready for this part of my life again and re-engage full on. Yeah. In the context of how you want to re-engage full on, I think it's really beautiful. And I think that that's part of where teaching yoga has this really awesome space for you that it holds place no matter how, if you teach two classes or you teach eight classes or you teach 12 classes, um, but supporting people in that is is very complex. Yeah, truthfully. Yeah, because I mean, if we're if, if for me, yoga is about um, it's a it's a supportive practice to help you you the human grow and evolve as the spiritual version of yourself. And so that means that you, as the witness and the teacher and the teacher of teachers and the owner of this business, also are trying to support not only students yourself and your teachers in doing that. And there's a, there's this, it goes back to me to this idea of balance, which I think is total bullshit. I think it's, you have to find, create the balance that serves um, your soul's need, your deep alignment at that exact moment in time. And that will change and ebb and flow. There is no ultimate balance. It's what 
what feels in line and accurate for you today. Mm-hmm. And that might change tomorrow. And that's a lot for you to hold. And I think as, as aspiring yoga teachers or as yoga students, that's our work too, right? And that's mm-hmm. what you seek to create space for. Yeah. So there's, um, Vance had mentioned servant leadership, and this is something that um, we started putting words for the things that we were doing, um, which is different than what I think a lot of businesses do, which is they prioritize their customers over their employees, or employees within the company prioritize their customers, which in our case would be students, over their relationship with the other employees. Mm -hmm. And something that I've learned through this is like the most important thing is the internal team to value and love each other. And that's very difficult. Um, I'm not saying we don't do that. I'm just saying that that's something very difficult to uphold when everybody has, in some ways, seemingly competing desire. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the competing desire? Classes. What is the competing desire? Students. What's Mm -hmm. the competing desire? Career. Yeah. And how do we reconcile the, that those relationships with each other, which is sort of my puzzle to solve. Yeah. That's the sort of the puzzle that I'm cons- constantly trying to figure out. And that's where ser- servant leadership comes in, which is um, Zingerman's follows this. And um, we follow a lot of what they do because they were putting words to things we were already thinking about. Yeah. Which is um, the higher you up, higher up you get in a company, the more it's your obligation to serve. Yeah. So it's the the flip of corporate America, which is the higher up you are, like the more you get, you're given coffee. Yeah. You're served. Yes. And versus, and it's not perfect. So this is where it's like the paradox of managing a schedule. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like every, it's like sometimes you have to chop off the need of an individual to serve the whole. Yeah. And um, as our new COO just um, realized in the past couple weeks of working with me, she's like, God, you are just like such a softy. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, she like never realized that. Like I come off so like, this is okay. Do it like this. Try it this way. And her impression of like who I would be in business is like so tough. Yeah. You know, giving feedback for me from an administrative perspective, I would be like so clear and like, this yeah. is the way it is. But actually what she's discovered is actually out of total wuss. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've known that forever. Um, <laughs> but I think that I think that's where people like you and I who are pretty direct and yeah. can be pretty blunt and honest, um, th- maybe we it gets confused with um, being not being it gets confused with being insensitive. Um, but mm-hmm. I think both of us we, we're, we're so both sensitive. deeply sensitive yeah. people. And again, as children who who felt the world so deeply, maybe some of this is ways that we've learned to navigate and kind of. Yeah. protect or, or communicate or whatever because of that inherent softness. But I think we could talk about the business of yoga forever and mm-hmm. um, yoga teachers, but I think maybe we do a round two. We talk about really the path of, of, of yoga, yoga and yoga teachers and what mm-hmm. we've learned as, uh, um, as quote-unquote senior teachers and what you've learned observing the growth of teachers and Me Too is doing teacher trainings. I think that'd be really fascinating yeah. for teacher trainers or yoga teachers to hear that other piece. What... Um, what lasting thoughts do you have if people are working to towards seeking, creating a more meaningful life? What what are your take home? What are your biggest thoughts or ideas about that, or how people can start to do that? I think purpose uh, purpose is extremely personal. So you have to start with personal, and then blow it up and make it more universal. Mm-hmm. We talk about that in our three hundred hour. Yeah. And I think that that's something that the 
the example I've been giving is, you know, if you're focused only on yourself, it's like standing in a puddle and being like, this is, this is the ocean. Yeah. And when you, your purpose also can develop and grow, like your higher ideal can grow. Yeah. It's the difference between then a lake. Yeah. And then it's the difference between being like standing in an ocean and feeling that vast connection to people. So when you are seeking purpose in your life, one, it doesn't have to be something like you change your job. Yeah, it doesn't have to even be huge at all. It's the intention behind the action itself that makes something purposeful. Yeah. And I think that everybody thinks by deriving purpose in their life, they need to change their life. Yeah. And sometimes it's just going beneath the surface mm-hmm. and discovering the meaning that you weren't seeing before. Yeah. And that, to me, is the way that you at least begin the process mm-hmm. of infusing your life like it's a fragrance like I sometimes we think of intention I think of intention like like you're infusing your life with the oil of your intention Mm -hmm. and then it every action you take has this fragrance of service yeah you might not understand it because again it goes back to the sort of paradox of sometimes service doesn't mean serving an individual yeah and that's where the paradox of servant leadership exists. Yeah. I read this all the time because it's like you can't give everybody what they want. Yeah. So I had written down before a thing like uh, we started, like you can, I can only do so much good. You mm-hmm. know, I have to be logical by how much good I do. Yeah. And I know that sounds really funny, but, and I can't, I'm not going to go into like depth about it and maybe we do something about this, but yeah. you can only do so much good for an individual, but you can do a ton of good for the whole. Yeah. And where how do you manage that is a part of finding a purpose because you won't be confused by your action Mm -hmm. because the purpose is the resounding background of everything. Yeah. And I think sometimes purpose is like gets confused to be this big over like this big umbrella. Um, Like you have one purpose your whole life and it's really these tiny meaningful actions that you're talking Mm -hmm. about, these daily intentions of purpose that lead to then creating a more contented life. And, and if it leads you someday to creating something really big and huge, great. But for a lot of people, it won't be that. But it doesn't mean then you can't still have a meaningful, intention, intentional, life. wonderful life. Even, um, I mean, even just teaching a class, for example, like people get hung up a lot, which I understand from a business perspective on like numbers, how many people are in your class. But when you're when you're hooked so deeply to something that inspires you about teaching, mm-hmm. then that you will override that experience. And then over time, because you're so genuine, it will naturally build itself. And yes. that's something that you sort of have coached me in some ways to understanding mm-hmm. as we grew Citizen was yeah. how, how do we believe in our purpose? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's, that again, those unseen, those pieces that seem disconnected, like you might be in a moment in your life right now that feels so disconnected, so not clear. Oh, I'm not getting anywhere. Like a lot of young people feel like I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not mm-hmm. caught up. The pressure of a timeline, you know, the pressure of social media, which I'm not going to start talking about because you'll never get me to shut up about we'll, we'll it. Save that for next time. Yes. But understanding that you just are in a piece of your life that you you are too involved in that you can't find the string Mm -hmm. and the purpose then it's the purpose specifically that serves other people that starts to I'm like imagining like a thread you know when you used to make those popcorn like you thread popcorn I don't know why but you thread like all throughout all those pieces and it creates something that 
is much more beautiful, but yeah. you can't see it all the time. And so having the faith that every single moment, though it seems disconnected from a purpose, mm-hmm. a meaning, um, a motive, yeah, that if you're so clear in doing the right thing, you'll always be taken care of. Yeah, I agree. Do the right thing one tiny step at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. Um, I'm looking forward to round two now, and we'll talk about yoga and yoga teaching more specifically. But um, if you guys are enjoying this, please subscribe and give it a review and share widely. I'm so grateful to spend this time with you, Casey, and I love you. Thank Thank you. Love you, too. Thank you.